Okay, well, welcome everybody. I feel like um, to our dedicated core of seminar attendees, our speakers today probably need very little introduction, but I'll introduce them anyway. So we've got a presentation today from Stanley Uliashek and Tess Bird. Many of you, of course, have worked with Stanley through um, UVVO over the years since he is the founder director of UVVO. And Tess Bird is, a, is an anthropologist who trained here in Oxford, um, who worked as a research officer within UVVO and then went to Wesleyan under a Mellon Fellowship for writing in the social sciences. And she remains a research affiliate um, here at the School of Anthropology in Oxford. Tess's, Tess's research area is very broad and I love the buzzword she's given me for it is um, generally the human negotiation of uncertainty. And that is uncertainty on multiple levels, including household uncertainty. So today um, she and Stanley will be talking about podcasting through the pandemic, but also um, broader considerations of uncertainty for example, uncertainty around climate change. So we're very happy to welcome Tess back to UVBO and um, to hear from her and Stanley today. So I'm just going to introduce what we're talking about today, which is a podcast that Stanley and I started, I think it was April of 2020, so in the beginning of the pandemic, called Around the Table, Food Stories from Science to Everyday Life. And our first series was called Lockdown Food. So I'm going to hand it over to Stanley to start us off with what that podcast was meant to be about. Well, thank you so much for that great introduction, Caroline, and uh, Tess for introducing the Tag Team Seminar. We're going to start by talking about COVID-19 and risks to global food security. I think it's something that everybody uh, listening has experienced, and this has been summarized nicely by Laborde and colleagues in 2020. But there were pandemic effects on availability and stability of supply through agricultural production, supply chain disruption, trade restrictions that meant that it became very unpredictable as to what foods would arrive where and when. Uh, buying patterns also changed the availability and stability of food supply through the AI algorithms that the retail sector uses to determine just-in-time uh, supply of foods to different supermarkets and stores, for example. The access and affordability of food also changed, especially to vulnerable populations. Prices went up, they came down again, and now what we're seeing is a steady rise in prices pretty well universally. Impacts on nutrition are the availability of different nutrients. The foods that became cheapest were often not the ones that were particularly nutritious. And what that amplified, uh, what COVID-19 amplified, was the uh, consumption of ultra-processed foods, which are storable, um, available, and often the cheapest foods, especially to people of, uh, in the lowest income brackets. So the pandemic had a number of direct and severe impacts on access to food, disruptions to availability, shifts in consumer demand towards cheaper, less nutritious foods, to, and to food price instability that was jumping around in relation to what could be done in putting food on the shelves. What didn't help is in some countries, people took to panic buying and uh, were preparing themselves as if, uh, as if they were going to war and had to be ready for you know, maybe six months of, of, of low food availability. So human behavior had a, a big impact on the, the local availabilities. In terms of food prices, these are some figures from DEFRA um, in the UK government. Looked at food prices between June the 29th and July the 5th in 2020, which showed how much prices have gone up relative to the five-year average for the same week in, in previous years. And it shows that 
Cereals had gone up by 19%, pork had gone up by 14%, lamb by 15%, milk by 7%, beef by 2%, eggs by 2%, and potatoes by 3%. That cereals, which are the mainstay in the British diet, um, in the form of bread especially, the prices have gone up quite dramatically. Next slide, please. Looking at the shifts in the stockpiling of foods uh, relative to a very convenient baseline measure, which is the stockpiling that people undertake at Christmas time. This is across the timeline coming into uh, coming to Christmas and then across to March, April and beyond for meat, for alcohol, for canned goods, for fruit and vegetables, for dry pasta, for flour, for eggs. And when we compare to Christmas time, the amount that people stockpile in the UK is quite prodigious for this uh, short period when the shops are, are closed. Meat uh, purchases went in, went up very dramatically. Um, alcohol less so uh, than at Christmas time. But then what happened was after lockdown, people started to consume or buy more alcohol, which presumably turns into increased consumption of alcohol as lockdown ground on. Canned foods, the emergency, the go-to emergency supply of tinned tomatoes and baked beans and things like that, all increased during lockdown. And of course, at Christmas time, that doesn't happen. Ice cream at Christmas time, a lot of people buy ice cream. This didn't happen with lockdown immediately, but again, again, as lockdown proceeded, more and more ice cream was being purchased and, and, and consumed. Consumption of fruit and vegetables, well, very similar to uh, to Christmas period. Dry pasta, people stocked up with dry pasta as their, their go-to if there were going to be an absolute crisis in, in food availability and everything would be disrupted. At least people had their canned tomatoes and their dry pasta. Uh, next slide, please. What happened to food security? What did people do in lockdown? This is, again, uh, governmental data, which looks at the ways in which people were buying their food, um, where people used, did people use meal deliveries? Well, meal deliveries increased. Uh, did people buy local? Yes, a lot more people bought local foods. Did people buy takeaway? No, that uh, that wasn't, uh, uh, there was much less takeaway. Did people have supermarket deliveries to the house? Yes, that increased dramatically. What happened in the home? People ate together. Yes, much more of that. They cooked food to freeze for later. There was less waste. Um, more food was cooked from scratch. This all sounds fantastic, but then body weight increased. Um, more people ate cakes and sweets and savory snacks. But again, more people eat, ate healthy meals. Now, this is all over the place. And I think what this data is concealing is the fact that there are there's more than one effect going on. There's privileged people who are able to eat together with the family, cook from scratch and do all the healthy stuff. But then there are people who have lower income, relied more on ultra, ultra processed foods and so ate more cakes and sweets and so on. Um, and so this is really a tale of two countries, the haves and the have-nots. And this amplifies the usual patterns of, of inequality within the, the UK. Next slide, please. What we were trying to do, we were trying to capture some of these very dramatic and rapid changes, feeling, at least in my view, that this was a, an historic moment, that we could actually do something that would be of value, not just for the immediate moment, but into the future. We could see how things were. I could see how things were in the UK. Tess could see how things were in the 
US, but we could interview people in many, many different places. And suddenly we were locked up in our houses, but we had the freedom to roam the planet with the uh, virtual online sources that we could use, including the potential for podcasting, mostly in the UK, also Sweden, Sweden, Spain, we know who that is, Esther, Australia, India, Italy, Denmark, Switzerland. It's not a global survey, nor was it representative, but it was an opportunistic one based on networks, hopefully covering a range of issues. But is any podcast series representative in the way that you might expect a scientific sample to be representative? We captured the moment of the first lockdown um, in what we think is the most documented pandemic of all time. In trying to capture all over the place, we had to quickly develop a strategy. And Tess is going to tell us more about that strategy for recording people's voices and taking down people's experience. One thing that I noticed in the early days of lockdown, when we were having seminars or a workshop, we were just asking people, how are things where you are? And I think we're still doing that. How are things where you are? So we meet up with with friends and colleagues across the planet and say, well, how is it in India? How is it in Israel? How is it in Spain? Etc. Etc. So I'll hand over now to Tess to talk about capturing all over the place. Thank you, Stanley. Yeah, so we we decided to start a podcast as a way to kind of have a conversational look inside different homes all over the world. And we really just drew um, initially on our network because that was who we had access to at the time. So I just put a little heart in different countries. Meek, you obviously can't tell which country here for some of them, but where we interviewed people all over the world. So I want to start first in this section by um, talking about the, the sort of um, methodology or like how to make a podcast. Because I thought since we've done this, I've talked to a lot of academics who are interested in making their own podcasts um, and making them sound maybe a little more professional than just putting up a talk, you know, <laughs> so adding music, adding, doing editing, that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to talk us through the process first of this. Um, this is obviously my setup uh, last summer, spring, summer. The first big thing that we decided to do was, was actually purchase this microphone, um, which is a Blue Yeti USB mic. And I quickly learned that even with this, it, the sound sound issues were hard. Like this was the hardest thing to kind of figure out like how to use this microphone. I think Stanley also had similar issues at first of just how loud did we have to talk? What setting should it be on? All this stuff. So there's a lot of trial and error going on throughout this whole process. Um, and the other big thing we learned is that both parties in the interview need earphones because there is a lot of background noise. So that was step one. Then we needed to figure out how do we interview people and make the sound quality work? I don't know. Back then, I feel like there was even more issues with Zoom because everyone was just learning how to use it and Skype was unreliable. So what could we use? So we actually discovered Zencaster which is a cool online program that um, both people can call in and it actually records two separate tracks that makes for much easier editing. So even if you're interviewing like six people on a call, everyone has their own track. So then if you get sound, background sound in one, you can just edit it out without ruining the whole, the whole uh, recording. So that was really cool. They also had a free version during the pandemic. The downsides were that participants had to have Google Chrome and you couldn't use it from a phone. So that did limit limits what we could do with some people. The next element, once we had those recordings, was of course editing. I used GarageBand mostly. Um, pictured here, but also sometimes Audacity. I really have no idea what I'm doing with editing. To be completely honest, it was complete trial and error and watching YouTube videos and I got the basics down. I still think there's way more I can learn, obviously. So that was that was kind of an interesting component. It took 
tons of time, which I, I think Stanley now knows he's also editing his own podcast, <laughs> but it, it is a process. The next step was, of course, how do we distribute this podcast? We chose to work with Anchor FM, Anchor.fm, which is a podcast distribution platform online and it is free. And that's part of the reason we went with it. It's also pretty well known in the podcasting world. And it automatically links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a, a variety of others. So you could search for us on Apple or on Spotify, but you can also go directly to our Anchor FM site. This can also integrate ads um, and earn money if you're popular enough, which we weren't. So we never earned money. Not yet anyway. We're just going to go to this quickly because I think it's worth having a little look at. But this is what it looks like when you log on to our site. So it gives you also a lot of data so you can track what's going on with your podcast, um, learn about your listeners, where they're from. I actually enjoyed that because you could see where people were listening from in the world. And you can see how many people are listening to each podcast. The next step was, of course, putting all of this on our own website, on the UBVO website. So I just did a little screenshot of what that looks like, but you use the RSS feed, put it in and boom, it just comes up automatically. So I loved all this automatic integration. I felt very tech savvy. Um, <laughs> so I had no idea what I was doing. And that was great. The final sort of step was, okay, how do we advertise this besides through the UBVO network? So I set up um, social media, which was mostly Instagram and Facebook. I think a lot of our listeners are probably from UBVO or my extended friends and family from this Instagram. You should definitely follow us. I thought I'd also pop up to our Instagram to show you what that looks like because I used a lot of different software over time. So I started with doing these very simple sort of posts about with different people's names, telling a little bit about what it was. And then with season two, which I'll talk about later, I got a little more fancy and experimented with design a lot more. You can tell me later which one you like better. The core thing we also posted to um, my Twitter account. I don't think Stanley has a Twitter account unless, unless he has one more recently. I also initially started with this purple design and then moved to this more podcast savvy design that I thought would like fit the trend better. I don't know. I'm learning this as I go along. I took a nice photo on my kitchen counter because this is what I did during lockdown. It was so boring. <laughs> and then I want to turn it back over to Stanley to just talk a little bit about the interview process because he actually did most of the interviews where I did most of the editing. I did, I did some interviews here and there, but I don't love my voice. So I didn't like interviewing as much and he did a really good job with that part. Yeah, the thing about voices is that it never sounds the same to somebody else as it does to you because you hear <laughs> your voice through your own skull. So I have the same problem. I, I find I have a weird sounding voice, but that's what everybody else hears. So I can't. You have just... the accent. I'm too American. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah, I don't know. For the year previous to this, I was already interviewing people for St. Cross College, which is my college at Oxford, in a series called St. Cross College Shorts. And these are just short podcasts of the fellowship saying, who are you? What do you do? How long have you been here? Kind of table talk, because the master at my college, uh, Carol Suter, said, well, you know, there's a lot of people you don't know. The college has grown hugely, so you don't know who's who. So I spent time interviewing various people, including the great and the good, in, in, in various podcasts. I got a sense of how to do this now. But I'd been doing this with a, with, a, with a portable recorder, so finding a quiet place to sit down and talk to somebody face-to-face. -face. This was new for me, that uh, having a Yeti microphone in front of me instead of a person and working out how to go from this 
the number of things that came out was, was, first of all, don't get too prepared. You can find out about somebody. You can talk to them a little bit. But you don't want too much preparation uh, because you want to retain some spontaneity. You need to know enough to be informed about what they're doing, but not too much, so that they can say what they need to say. The second part that was important was giving space to the interviewee. It's not about me. It's not about Tess. It's about the person who's being interviewed. So give them the space. You ask a question, give them the space to talk, give them the space to say what they need to say. And there's never a problem if something goes wrong because you can always edit what, you're, uh, what you've recorded. Part of this was also trying to identify what is interesting and novel in what they're saying. It's a bit like doing an ethnography. You kind of start off anew and say, well, everything is interesting, everything is novel. By the time you've done six or seven recordings, what's interesting as novel at the beginning is no longer interesting and novel because there are things that start to emerge as themes. And Tess is going to talk about that shortly. But everybody has their own particular way of explaining what was interesting and important to them. And so, you know, there are many twists on those themes. We have to also think about the interviewee, the person who's being interviewed, and respect their circumstances because some of these people are in hard times. You know, if they're in the food industry in one way or another, then they're being kicked around by circumstances and trying to adapt to how things are uh, for them and trying to keep their work alive while going through lockdown. So respect for their circumstances, also not wasting their time. That is, you don't want to be spending a lot of time in tech getting things working while, you know, their time is the most precious commodity for them at a moment of intense stress. So we went for recording straight through so that if there were missteps, we could edit those out. So we made it clear at the beginning that we're on the speaker's side. There's no such thing as a stuff up. If you said something wrong, go back and say it again, and we will record it and respect uh, your circumstances and we'll respect what you say. That was, that was the recording side of it. Then the other side of it, which we're still working on, is finding our audience. Who are we trying to speak to? Um, I'm also patently aware that, you know, in two years' time, nobody will really want to know about the pandemic anymore because everybody will want to move on. But I think it's important that we have this document of a particular time. Finding our audience is still something that we're trying to find out. The podcast series was set up very quickly. And I put that down to a magic table effect. Most people, I think, in this room haven't seen the magic table. This is in my office in 51 Banbury Road in Oxford. And it was coined the magic table by Kareen Ellie, who's on the left here, as saying this is the place where sitting down and drinking tea and eating lunch and even cake from time to time, we've been able to come up with so many ideas and operationalize so many ideas that the impact of UBVO has been in its seminars, its presentations, its workshops, but also around the magic table where in normal times, when we have seminars, we would invite people around the magic table at lunchtime to sit down and share a very simple lunch. Anybody could come along. The meal was paid for. It didn't cost a lot, but actually what we got out of it was huge. And so now we have a magic table writing group, which includes Kareen, Tess, uh, and a Katrina Kleberg Hansen from Copenhagen, uh, Tanya Schneider, who you can't see, she took the picture, and the magic table lives on. So it was a way of working collaboratively, but in a very friendly and informal way where we have fun 
but we do serious work. So did the magic table help? I think so. Um, so now that we gave you some, some sense of the method and how we went about doing this, we thought it would be best to play a little um, mashup that I put together that's actually from four different episodes, just to give you a sense of the music we use and everything that we're doing if you haven't listened to the podcast yet. Hello and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Can everyone hear? Yep, yep. I live in Connecticut, where I teach at Wesleyan University, and one of my favorite places to go for coffee and acai bowls and avocado toast is Life Bowls in Madison, Connecticut. So the co-owner is actually a friend of mine from undergrad, so I decided to give him a call up and see what it was like to run a food business, which is considered essential in Connecticut, during lockdown. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm good. So I know that you are one of the co-owners of the most amazing acai bowl place um, this side of the country. Correct. Life bowl. So can you tell us a bit about what it's like to be running a business that's considered essential in, in these COVID-19 times? Yeah, so it's been fairly difficult. Um, the beginning was really difficult, mostly just because, you know, there was a lot of questions about um, what we were going to be allowed to do, um, how we were going to be able, allowed to operate, what kind of safety precautions we were going to have to implement. So there were just a lot of questions, um, you know, how long restrictions would last and things like that. So it's been you know, a little nerve-wracking and a little hectic, but I feel like overall our team has done really well adapting and trying to, you know, just find ways to push forward and do what we can to remain in business while keeping our employees safe and our customers safe. Today is May the 13th, 2020. Okay. COVID-19 pandemic on it for a while and uh, today I'm very pleased to be talking with Esther Gonzalez Padilla uh, who does research on sugar intake and disease with a public health approach at the Union University in Sweden. So Esther, welcome. Thank you very much. So Esther, can you, can you tell me something about your experience with food? How has it been in, uh, in Canary Islands? Well, um, Spain has a really strong food culture and it's one of those countries championing Mediterranean diet. So there is much of our social interactions that revolve around the dining table and eating. Uh, one of the key features of Mediterranean diet includes this social aspect of meal sharing and slow eating. So we have a very specific term for it in Spain. It's called sobremesa, and that refers to the time that we spend around the table after a meal has taken place, just socializing or talking or joking and creating bonds. So it only makes sense now that those people in the working force that used to eat in 30 minutes to be able to go back to work or that were forced, forced to eat at a desk or while commuting, they can now take time to enjoy meals together with their family or whoever lives in their home, but also to cook together. So how has the pandemic impacted business? 
Well, it's really, really created a shift um, in our business because now we find ourselves in the uh, position of producing hand sanitizers. Um, as you know, there's uh, been an extreme shortage of medical supplies here, well, worldwide, especially here in the U.S. And um, there's been a great need um, to produce these um, sterile products for our healthcare uh, workers. So we received a email from the FDA uh, probably two months ago. Um, outlining this need and with it came along a formula. So I should explain that typically when a distiller brings a product to market, we file a formula, we file label approval and months later we can have a product out on the market. Uh, because there was such urgency around this, the FDA said if you follow the World Health Organization's formula for this hand sanitizer, um, we'll forgive any um, approvals and you can move right ahead and go immediately into production. And that's what we did, um, which is good because business is certainly off. I mean, all the, um, the most all the restaurants are closed. Um, and of course, the um, retail is severely cut back. So that's what we did. We launched into this hand sanitizer production, not as a profit center, but just to kind of keep our, our workers going. Uh, we're basically putting this out at cost uh, to healthcare facilities. And it was really kind of eye-opening and a little shocking to see how desperate the situation actually was. I mean, we were getting calls from uh, hospitals in Boston, as far away as Colorado, um, looking for um, these, this hand sanitizer, just a really basic um, need of theirs. And uh, so what we had to do was limit our product. We had we had limited production, but limited our output to um, eight healthcare facilities. And then we have a waiting list beyond that of um, healthcare facilities that we can supply as we get um, more inventory. And the challenge has been um, the, the raw materials, specifically as simple as the plastic bottles this, these go in. Um, most of them come out of China and a lot of plants are still shut down. So that's been a real challenge, um, trying to just keep um, product uh, flowing here. And lockdown seems to have exposed a number of forms of inequality and structural violence. So can you uh, uh, say something about that? Definitely. I think one of the other reasons the meat supply chains really come up in Australia is because we've seen a number of kind of pockets of infection, um, of coronavirus or COVID-19 infection pop up in um, especially meat supply, in those along the meat supply chain and especially in meat processing parts. And when you think about why we might be seeing a concentration of cases in the processing plants, then it opens the conversation about what kind of conditions people are working in and living in in these kind of um, settings. So if you can imagine um, workers in meat processing plants work in high speed, um, close quarters to each other. Um, they work in wet environments um, and it's often very cold, which is both great places to cultivate virus. Uh, but in addition, they're low paid, they're quite often poorly paid. It's a very precarious workforce um, in many places, not only in Australia, but also in Germany and, and in the US. There's no pay for taking time off sick. There's often shared transport to and from work. So something interesting there is the way the virus kind of exposed uh, the vulnerabilities that come, I suppose, from the structural violence um, across the supply chain and 
within the profession. Obviously, this is just a small snippet from four different episodes, but I wanted to give a sense of some of um, just the, the things that were coming up that, you know, were going on specifically at this time. So I think the hand sanitizer is a, a great example. And then the um, meat changes in the meat industry, um, but also the everyday that Esther was talking about in the Canary Islands, these kinds of everyday things um, and the changes in business that my friend John Bone was talking about. I just want to give you a sense of that and the sound and the music we use um, and how that would work all together and then i'm going to talk now about some of these these the themes that are emerging more generally um as stanley said before some of these themes you um hear about all the time and they're not as interesting anymore and the most common example is sourdough i think like a thousand people mention sourdough <laughs> no i swear a lot of people we interviewed mentioned just making making things in their home these are my own sourdoughs that i was experimenting with during lockdown i'm still making them once a week so it really stuck um and i wanted to give a shout out to modern baker in oxford um if anyone has never been there you should go but their cookbook is amazing so i won't talk about sourdough because i think we all have heard too much about it but one of the things that sourdough comes from is this idea that food provisioning really shifted into the home, um, which Stanley mentioned earlier, but we were able to see this in action. Um, photos are my own food provisioning in the home, including sourdough pizza and growing microgreens <laughs> and eggs and soldiers because I miss the UK. <laughs> but some of the bigger, bigger themes in the podcast were, of course, creativity and cooking, um, this idea of kind of working toward to the end of the pantry and getting more creative with these leftovers. A lot of drinking, I will say. There's definitely the creative cocktail movement or the quarantini that came up with a few people. Um, and then Sardo, as I said. Also, I forget which episode this was in, but someone had mentioned the micro market of sweets. I think this was with some friends in Lebanon, um, that there's this kind of micro market of sweets amongst the family of, of things just being passed around that was felt very unhealthy to them. And then of course, snacking out of stress or boredom. Then there is also these impacts on food and drink industry that was cut off, I'm supposed to say food and drink industry. This included this shifts in production. A great example was the distiller I, I talked to making hand sanitizer, which is pictured here. And then impact on the global food system, as Amy was talking about with the meat industry and lessons for the future on how to manage uncertainty in the system, AI stuff. And then, of course, my friend John Bone, who was talking about um, actually doing really well during lockdown, like one of the, the few businesses I've heard of that, that managed to kind of boom because they were already set up for takeout. Um, and of course, it was a summer, summer industry anyway. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over to Stanley to talk about this kind of final um, theme that's coming up, which is, of course, these new understandings about inequality and disease and how they're playing out. One of the things that the podcast captured, I thought, were some of the aspects of inequality, like monetary strain, food provisioning, job security. You could hear it in people's voices, um, straightforwardly people being positive, and yet you could feel this undertow of, of, of insecurity in their voices. There's a lot of data about this, but you can't actually capture the emotion that's involved in just not knowing what the future is going to look like, not even having a future. I think this is one of the valuable things about doing a podcast is that it can capture emotion in a way that the written word struggles to do some of the time. 
We also captured some of the, the impacts on disease because COVID-19 is something that now links chronic disease to infectious disease. We saw the rise of the relationship between obesity and diabetes and COVID-19. Uh, also the impacts on gender equity. So what did we learn? Um, in the podcasting process, uh, the most important thing was preparation, preparation, preparation. Uh, we had a pragmatic choice of technologies for recording, for editing, for uploading. We were learning to find our voice. It's something that we struggled with and something that you know, I, for one, certainly continue to do. I've said that you know, finding our audience is also a work in progress. I think this is a work in progress for everybody who's doing podcasts, uh, learning as we went along getting the technologies, learning the technologies, getting comfortable with the technologies, getting comfortable with the process of podcasting uh, in uh, uh, online way. The good thing is that we had a good working relationship between Tess and myself, and uh, we could throw ideas around and uh, usually came to agreements very, very quickly. And uh, it seemed to flow organically, I felt. I've mentioned having a sensitivity to circumstances for individuals being interviewed. There was the occasional tech failure where you'd resort to using a different medium where you might have somebody says, well, I'll use my phone now and all kinds of things happened. And so you just improvise, um, still come away with something, but improvise, but also learn to be comfortable that this is going to happen from time to time. And so don't get stressed. You cannot get stressed because if you get stressy, it's not going to be a good interview. So you've got to be relaxed. Finally, some speakers were less comfortable, less practiced in speaking for an audience than others. Oftentimes, if you ask an academic to talk about their favorite subject or the thing that they, re re or the thing that they research, they will just start talking and keep talking and be very comfortable in talking because this is part of what they do for a living. But people who are not in the profession of talking and disseminating in the way that uh, academics and researchers are, it's not so straightforward and not so easy. But on the other hand, perhaps this makes it more authentic. Tess, and, over to you. Yeah, so obviously I agree with Stanley's lessons learned um, and I am gonna give the dark side. Um, I think when we're talking about a, a podcast, um, a kind of academic podcast, I think it's it's actually there's a, a growing market for creating high quality academic podcasts because they have a small audience side. They're specific. They're kind of niche. We're already used to only like 10 people reading our papers. So it's no big deal how many people listen to it. It's still like, I think, something great to do. But in the meantime, I had gotten kind of steeped in this external podcast world. I have a really good friend who's a podcast producer and then another good friend who works in, in podcasting and is a manager. And um, I just learned a lot through the process that the competition really is steep. Um, there's around 2 million podcasts out there and 850,000 active podcasts. So it's really hard to stand out from the crowd. So I think for anyone looking to do a real you know, boom of a podcast, um, you need to do more research into the background of like what it means to have a good podcast. And there are many things I learned that we didn't do, such as even just trying to um, encourage people to leave good reviews on our podcast. We, like we never did this and we probably should have. So there's, there's small, small things we could have done that I was learning over time. And then also a lot of time goes into the behind the scenes. Like I said, market research, editing, advertising, tech savvy stuff um, and market savvy things. A lot of professional podcasters actually outsource marketing and editing to podcast producers. So one of my friends, we popped the link up, she actually does this now for her 
her main living. So, <laughs> so I was, I was kind of like, wow, I could, you know, be getting paid like more money to do this for, <laughs> for people, but I didn't love the editing process. So I put this cartoon up because this is actually kind of a thing in the podcasting world is people saying, maybe you should stop your podcast because it's just overrun. But all that said, I really do think there's a whole different market for academic podcasts. And that's really important. And I appreciate this what we did because it is this snapshot in time and it was very conversational. And it also led to season two after lockdown food. We was actually, I have to say it was inspired by Esther's podcast because she talked at the end about, about sugar. And it was just a little one part of the question because a lot of it was about lockdown and a friend listened to it. And she said, I really want to know more about that science. Like that's what I really want out of this podcast. And so we um, went back and interviewed her and, for our second season, along with many other people, some of which are pictured here, about more um, science-oriented elements of, of food. So we called this series Bite-Sized Experts. So they're meant to be 20 to 30 minutes um, on a really specific topic. You can you could read it, you can check these out if you haven't listened to them. Um, so I think I think this was also a, a successful series. I think it just had a different, a different quality and a different shift, but I was proud of that one that, as well. So there's also Stanley went off on this and did his own swimming pod. So I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Stanley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. Anybody who knows me well knows I have a passion for swimming. And there's um, a real upsurge in outdoor swimming in the UK and I think globally. And so I'm capturing some of these ordinary people and key people. And I've got to say that if I hadn't done this work with Tess, I would not have the microphone. I would not have the knowledge and would not have the expertise or the comfort level to do this. And I reach out to various people who are now kind of kind of iconic. I draw your attention to Sean Richardson. Okay, there's a group of swimmers called the Blue Tits, um, who are actually mostly women. And it started on a, on a beach and on a farm in Wales. And now there's 6,000 members across the world. And talking to her was an absolute blast. So, you know, capturing historical moments, I suppose, is something that uh, I've enjoyed doing. Uh, the podcast series is going well. There's a lot of work involved, but kind of sort of engaged with one of the communities I care about, the food and nutrition community, the swimming community, but also the college community. During um, lockdown, I was charged by the master of my college, Carol Suter, to do a series of podcasts on the COVID-19 response. I know a number of fellows pretty well in college and who are doing pretty high profile stuff in relation to COVID-19. One of them was Andy Pollard, who is one of the creators of the AstraZeneca Oxford uh, vaccine. He's in my college. Interviewed him, and you know we we did this on Zoom, and actually seeing him on screen, and we felt like little children. We hadn't seen each other for a year, and we just ooh ooh ooh. If only we could really be sitting down at lunch together and talking about this. That was really nice. Mike Parker, who's a an ethicist also at college, who I didn't know was a member of Sage, which is the sort of governmental advisory group, the highest level governmental advisory group. And so we got to talk about that. And Rana Mitter, he's a sinologist. He knows the history and politics of China, director of the China Center in, in Oxford, uh, but also a Radio 3 announcer. He's got his own program on Radio 3, the BBC. So when I interviewed him, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm sort of learning from a, somebody who does this uh, as part of their living. So that's been really uh, really interesting good so I've taken to podcasting I enjoy it and I think it's doing something really important 
Thank you. I had to add some scones and tea for the British audience. Thank you, thank you all for listening. It's kind of funny to me that that Stanley is now super excited about podcasting and I'm like, never again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you guys so much. Um, so since you guys were doing a dual presentation, Caroline and I thought we'd sort of do a dual hosting duty. So I'm going to lead the, the Q&A today. Uh, we were just inspired by you. Uh, so first off, Thank you very much for that. It's really nice to see sort of behind the scenes of this and uh, particularly to see, you know, two people who are more senior than myself and, and who I look up to, to get to see your learning process as well. And um, it's, it's very nice. So thank you for letting us in on that.